Let's talk about data. I mean, these days, everybody's talking about data. It's now common knowledge that the information economy relies heavily on the collection, exchange, and use of our data. Personal details, browsing histories, behavioral traces, photos and posted comments, along with the innumerable associations, inferences, predictions, and classifications that are generated out of that data. Data flows from and around us continuously, streaming in and out of our various apps and networks, across our devices, blurring our public and private lives, emerging out of our intentional and unintentional interactions with other people, but also out of an increasing number of our dealings with institutions, companies, and governments. What happens to that data, how it's used, by whom, and to what ends, is an issue of growing urgency and mounting public concern. In some parts of the world, like the EU, it's even led to the introduction of significant new privacy regulation aimed at curbing the access and power of the data economy and protecting the rights of users. If there's one group of users that's seen as especially in need of privacy protection online, it's children. Images of the child at risk are often evoked in policy debates and in media coverage of issues relating to data privacy. Indeed, many countries have enacted special protections and limits on how service providers can gather and display children's personally identifiable information and other sensitive data. And yet, children's data is still being collected in massive quantities across all areas of their lives and of those of their parents and caregivers. It is harvested, profiled, and mobilized by the children's industries, by big data brokers, and by governments for various reasons, both known and unknown. What's the impact of this on children's identities, on their well-being, on their rights? Dr. Veronica Barassi, professor in media and communication studies at the University of St. Galen in Switzerland, is an anthropologist who spent the past several years researching these very questions. She's the author of Child Data Citizen, How Tech Companies Are Profiling Us From Before Birth, a groundbreaking new book published by the MIT Press in 2020. In it, Dr. Barassi shows how children today are the first generation of citizens to be datafied, a process that increasingly starts before a child is even born. Think pregnancy apps and digitized medical records and all the ways that data is gathered from and about expectant mothers. She argues that this has critical implications, not only for children as they're profiled and sorted, but for our shared democratic future. Dr. Brassi has presented this important and eye-opening work at talks and symposia around the world, including a 2019 TEDx talk that's attracted nearly 2 million views to date. It builds on her larger body of scholarship, which examines digital participation, civic engagement, data rights, and data justice. Her previous publications include the book Activism on the Web, Everyday Struggles Against Digital Capitalism, published by Rutledge in 2015, as well as the journal article Datafied Citizens in the Age of Coerced Digital Participation, published in the journal Sociological Research Online in 2019. Dr. Barassi does a lot of public outreach, working with companies to help them implement privacy by design into their products and services, and sharing her findings with policymakers in the UK and Ireland, among others. 
I'm Sarah Grimes, Director of the Knowledge Media Design Institute at the University of Toronto and host of the Critical Technology Podcast. Today, I'll be talking to Dr. Veronica Barassi about her recent book, Child Data Citizen, and her thoughts on children's privacy, the datafication of childhood, and the potential for data justice for children in the digital environment. Let's just jump right in. Who is the child data citizen? Well, the child data citizen, um, I think it's it's my daughters. It's all the children that were born after 2011. Those children that for the very first time in history have become uh, uh, datafied from before they were born. Um, so, yeah, and I decided to write uh, uh, the book and, and to launch the project precisely for this reason, because uh, I was uh, studying and writing about surveillance and, uh, and data collection in the context of activists. And I, w- I got pregnant with my first daughter. Uh, and while I was uh, writing my first book, I actually realized that a lot of parents around me and a lot of uh, people around me were producing so many data traces of children. And some of the, sometimes these data traces were um, also very sensitive and also political. And so I started questioning what, what did that mean for the children uh, of that generation to be datafied from before birth. So yeah, that's who the child data citizen is. In the book, you talk quite a bit about big data, leading to a process called datafication. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about what this term means? The rise of, uh, of uh, big data, uh, and the term big data, um, was uh, aimed at describing a big technical transformation that was happening at the time. What we were seeing around uh, 2011, 2012, uh, um, was uh, the creation of big uh, computers, and powerful computers, uh, which were able to integrate and analyze larger and larger data sets, right? So we saw a a growth in the computer power and and the ability to process data, but also we saw a growth uh, in terms of databases. So these were like the big uh, data and uh, the big data that, the idea of big data was that, precisely linked to the idea of hugeness of big computers. But then something else happened at the same time, um, which it was that, um, of course, the rise of big data uh, coincided with the rise of surveillance capitalism uh, or came just after the rise of surveillance capitalism. And so a lot of parts of society uh, was uh, um, were concerned with the idea that data was value and the data was capital. And so around us uh, at social level, what we actually uh, had, it was different institutions, different businesses, uh, different organizations uh, um, who started to invest uh, uh, massively in the accumulation, uh, the analysis of personal data. And that's why we talk about datafication. The first ones to mention the, the term datafication were uh, Mayor Schoenberg and Cook here in their book uh, on the big data revolution. But really, datafication came to be a, a term that was used mostly uh, within social research, uh, research to um, explore how our society was being datafied around us. You mentioned surveillance capitalism, and this is another concept that comes up a lot in the book. What role does surveillance capitalism play in the datafication of children? 
And how does your work contribute to the larger discussion around this idea? The very idea of surveillance capitalism started to emerge 10 years before uh, what we currently understand as the rise of big data. Uh, so around 2002. And this was a time in which uh, um, digital companies needed to create a new understanding of, uh, of, um, on, of the online economy because the online economy had just crashed. You know, it was just after 2000, just after the crash of the dot-com bubble. And, um, and we had uh, different companies, digital companies in the Silicon Valley that had to reinvent themselves. And, uh, and to reinvent themselves, they, they, they started to realize that uh, um, there was a lot to, to be gained if they started to capitalize on data. Now, Zugo believes that the first to notice this uh, was Google. And uh, in 2002, uh, Google um, discovered what she understands as this behavioral surplus. So basically the idea that all the data that tech companies were already collecting on people's uh, behaviors, and they were collecting that data to uh, improve their technologies, all that data could actually be used to create new value, right? This idea that actually we needed to gather a lot of people's data, that we could cross-reference this data, and then once we did that, we had uh, an insight into people's behaviors, uh, and so that we could uh, use this uh, insight uh, for um, make, to make decisions, you know, so to mitigate risk or to target them with specific content and so on. So all the ideas that to us are very common today, like the idea of predictive analytics, uh, the, the idea that data is value, really emerged during that historical period, um, which was uh, actually led to a fundamental economic transformation. Now, obviously, the economic transformation uh, that surveillance capitalism enabled was precisely that of datafication, because everywhere around us, uh, people started to make money out of our data and, and wanted to collect our data, right? So, and how does this affect children? First of all, a lot of the, uh, the data of children at the moment is being gathered from many different sources, right? Um, and then this data is also and has, can, can be also be integrated into unique ID profiles. So uh, what we are actually having at the moment is companies that have the technological means and the uh, data means to um, follow individuals across a lifetime, from the moment in which they're born until they die, okay? Uh, now, um, another uh, fundamental issue that emerges when we talk about children's data, of course, is how this data is being used. It's not only to create a unique ID profiles, uh, so that and kind of comprehensive unique ID profiles, but it's also to classify children and and uh, and close them and lock them in into profiles that then are sold and repackaged to different companies for different means. This data then is kind of going to impact their life because it is we don't know how they're being profiled and uh, and the real problem is the fact that uh, they often are going to be profiled on the basis of the of the groups that they belong to on the basis of the of the of their families and so there's a, a real scope for discrimination for locking children in stereotypes and uh, evade social mobility so this was this were my main concerns when i launched the child data citizen project your research explores how data is collected about children, both actively and passively. 
from the children themselves, but also through parents, teachers, grandparents, and so on. Can you explain the relationships between these different modes of data collection? This is something actually that, I, that I'm very much interested in because, uh, of course, uh, um, as uh, the latest uh, example, like Instagram for kids or the example of uh, a Messenger for kids, YouTube for kids, you can actually see that uh, the big tech are actively and directly aiming at creating platforms that gather a lot of uh, children's data. TikTok as well. There's a lot of uh, the different companies that are doing the same. Uh, and if you actually look uh, into the children's privacy policy of the companies, they're not subtle in the amount of data that they're collecting. Like Facebook Messenger for Kids collects all the video, all the contents, all the interactions, uh, um, all the communications that the children have, right? Um, and so, and that's obviously um, a, a key example of the fact that uh, uh, these companies are directly trying to gather the uh, data of children with parental so, uh, uh, consent and so uh, legally, um, and they and 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 they obviously accumulate this data and they share this data. Now, uh, and that's the way in which uh, children's data is being produced. Like whenever whenever children you know download a new app uh, and if they have uh, um, online ID profiles and things like that, that's direct ways in which children's data is, uh, is being is being produced and collected. But there are other forms that are actually indirect ways in which uh, children's data is being uh, produced and collected. And this is uh, through um, the profile, uh, through adult profiles. So, um, for instance, uh, um, usually parents share a lot of information, a lot of photos on their adult profiles on Facebook or on Instagram or on Twitter. Or another example can be can be found if you think about home technologies. Home technologies like Alexa uh, or Amazon Echo or Google uh, Google Assistant, they are not directed uh, directed at children. They're not designed for children, but children interact with these technologies on a daily basis. Now, one fundamental problem with this is the fact that because these technologies do not uh, are not designed and targeted at children. Um, they don't have to comply with children data protection regulations. Um, the other big problem that uh, that is emerging is uh, um, the problem of uh, biometrics. Photographs can be turned into face prints, and uh, and face prints are like fingerprints. The same can be said uh, uh, about voice uh, voice data. So both face data and voice data are actually biometrical data, can be turned into biometrical data. Now, a lot of companies say that they don't do it, and uh, especially Facebook, for instance, uh, says that it doesn't uh, uh, take the face prints of people under the age of 18. Having said that, there is uh, a fundamental problem there, especially, uh, and, and, and debates at the moment are emerging around TikTok and the collection of face prints. So, um, and the, the fundamental problem that we have is that uh, companies say that they're not doing it, but they do have the technologies to do it. And they have a lot of data and a lot of data that can actually be aggregated under Unique ID profile because uh, it can be connected to biometrical data. So what role does intersectionality, race, ethnicity, gender, class, and sexual orientation play in these relationships? Well, I think that uh, it plays a fundamental role. So when we're thinking about uh, stereotypes and when we're thinking about uh, how algorithms read human beings, we need to understand that um, we are not being profiled on the basis of our personal and individual data. 
<laughs> I don't know that this sounds uh, weird to say because everybody says that that's the case, but that's not technically the case. We are often profiled on the basis of the groups that we belong to. So if we belong to a specific uh, family, uh, a specific class background, a specific, uh, I don't know, ethnicity and so on, uh, that uh, we are being profiled for that, okay? Um, now, historically, uh, people have always profiled others on the basis of this uh, sensitive data, right? So we have always been judged on the basis of our religion, on the basis of our ethnicity, and we've always encountered uh, human bias, right? But what, what's actually new is that uh, uh, because uh, AI systems at the moment are um, cross-referencing different types of data, and they are, uh, they are kind of taking decisions on the basis of uh, uh, the process of algorithmic profiling. Uh, we are, these decisions, we often kind of, we don't have any control over this decision. We don't have any understanding over this decision. So what really happens is that I'm being profiled in a particular way, or my child has become profiled in a particular way, and then uh, it's uh, uh, automatically is not going to be uh, targeted with a specific content, right? He's going to be automatically excluded for, from some form of information, okay? So, and this is the real problem that emerges when we're talking about data justice and inequality and how social inequality intersects uh, for, uh, in, in algorithmic profiling, right? So this is kind of the, the key um, idea. And when you're thinking about children, for instance, one um, example that I make in my book, uh, which I find that particularly problematic in this regard, is the use of personalized learning, right? Now, the use of personalized learning emerged very much by with, because people thought that it was a great idea, uh, especially if you could uh, um, gather data of students and then uh, identify risks or identify uh, children that were struggling and then you would target them with specific content, okay? So there was a kind of a good, uh, um, a good idea behind it. But when you think about personalized learning, there is something extremely problematic that emerged. Uh, and this is the fact that, that, A, children are being profiled on the basis of uh, uh, very uh, different types of data. So in the book, I talk about the case of summit learning. And if you look, at, which is uh, um, founded by the uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and, and, uh, and Chang, his wife's uh, initiative. When you go to summit learning, it's quite interesting because they talk about personalized learning. But when you actually look at the data that they are collecting, they are collecting a wide variety of data. Uh, they are collecting data about uh, ethnicity. They are collecting data about uh, um, um, the class background. They are collecting data about uh, um, the all the kind of notes and the observations, teachers' ob observations, anything that they could actually uh, integrate together, right? And um, and then on the basis of this data, they create targeted education, right? Children are being stereotyped and they're being locked into stereotype at that early age. Uh, on the basis of their data, they are being classified and then specific content is is uh, is decided that is the best content for them, right? But this is contravenes completely the logic of education. Uh, and uh, and it is particularly particularly problematic because this stalls social mobility. This creates a problem in uh, in the making.
Your response just now again points to the wide range of ways and places that children's data is collected. In the book, you divide this up into four categories of data flows that impact children's lives and futures. Health data, educational data, as in the example you just described, home life data, and social media data. Why did you focus on these four categories? Um, I suppose it's, uh, you know, uh, when you do ethnographic research and you do kind of anthropological research, you just write on the, uh, what you find out, right? And that, and those were the main ca- categories that came out uh, during my research. One aspect that really surprised me, it was that usually the parents that I talked to were kind of, uh, normally they would be quite uh, um, relaxed with the idea of data privacy, right? Uh, so they were like, oh, you know, I don't mind the posting photos of uh, of my children on social media. But they would be very worried when it came to, for instance, health profiling, right? Especially in the U.S. where everything is based on, on health insurance, they would uh, be very private about health data, right? So there was, they were kind of, I could, I could see that people had different attitudes towards different uh, data. And especially health and education data were... Uh, more sensitive data for, for families, you know, they, uh, parents don't want their children to have a bad report at school that follows them across their lifetime. What I want to show with the book is that if you start uh, breaking down uh, the key data flows in family life, so social media data, home life data, and uh, health data and educational data, uh, what you actually realize is that the different data flows have different impacts. Because being profiled for a health problem across your lifetime, that could have massive implications on an individual life. And and this is beyond, uh, uh, you know, people that say, oh, you know, you're going against the children's privacy because you posted a photo of your child eating an ice cream on, on social media, okay? So, uh, so what I want to show is the, how people are producing these types of data, how this type of data is being collected, and what are the implications of this type of data for children's lives. A common question that comes up in discussions of children's privacy is, why do the parents agree to all of this in the first place? I'm thinking here about examples like the Sharenting debates, which you touched on in your response just now. And much of the literature describes it as the result of a privacy trade-off, or a digital resignation that parents end up engaging in. But one of your key contributions is the idea that parents are actually often participating under coercion, not as the result of active decision-making or even decision fatigue. In the book, you call this the coercion of digital participation. Can you talk a bit more about this? Yeah, sure. Um, So uh, can I tell you a story? (laughs) So one day, beginning of 2020, as a special treat for my daughter, I decided to take her, uh, as just me and her, to Disneyland. Uh, So I drove to Disneyland and uh, it was her special thing and it was her, like, it was her present, right? So I arrived at Disneyland, I buy the tickets, which are not cheap, and uh, we are queuing for to get in after we bought the tickets. And the uh, lady at the door uh, takes my face scan and, uh, uh, and uh, my daughter, well, takes a photo of my daughter's face and, and a photo of, my, uh, of me. And I immediately realized that they're using facial recognition. And I was like, uh, and I was like, oh, oh, question if they're using facial recognition. So I asked the lady what's going on. And I say, look, um, are you getting the face? Why are you using facial recognition? And she explains to me that it's a security measure 
uh, if uh, somebody takes the child out of the of the park or if I wanted to move uh, to Park Hop because there are two different parks at Disneyland in Los Angeles, right? Uh, so that we didn't have to show our tickets both, both ways, right? And I was like, well, is there a way that I can... Uh, can I opt out? Uh, can I can I see a data privacy policy? And they were like, and they, they were very unsure about all this. And they were like, then she called the manager. And by that time, you have to imagine that I'm standing there, I'm asking these questions, because I feel that it's so unfair that they haven't even asked me in the first place if it was okay uh, or showed me a data privacy policy and uh, and I'm, I'm standing there and my daughter is literally dying to get in and she's getting really frustrated and, and rightly upset because I am uh, uh, I am kind of lingering at the door and everybody's looking at us right so um, and that was a, a really awful experience so I decided to just uh, go for it and uh, they took her face and uh, they took mine as well. They promised me that they would delete it uh, in uh, uh, within the day. But again, I didn't see any data privacy policy just to to know for sure. And even if I did, would I have had a real choice? And this is the the thing that I'm asking uh, in my book. The majority of parents are often confronted with this situation where they don't have a choice. I, when I moved to Zurich, uh, my my daughter was starting in her new school, and it was. At just at the beginning of the pandemic and they used Google Classroom and I had to uh, create a, a Google account. It had been five years that I've been studying this uh, this uh, this uh, topic and I was not really happy and I asked questions but then the uh, principal was like well you know this is what we use you know kind of like that's that's what we can afford <laughs> just free right so this is like kind of I, I draw on the experience of parents and I draw on the experience of myself and I noted a lot of ethnography of this uh, but but really um, I rely on uh, on the theory of uh, um, around citizens uh, and uh, and the idea that uh, coercion is is not necessarily something that it's uh, um, a, the use of force uh, but coercion is understood as forced compliance. We are constantly forced to comply and to agree to uh, terms and conditions. And that's why I talk about the coercion of digital participation. This brings up another point that you make, which is that the centrality of parental consent in existing regulation is in itself problematic. Yeah, well, <laughs> once you understand that most of the parents are coerced, into digitally participating. Then uh, the other thing that comes quite uh, natural to uh, understand is the fact that when parents agree to terms and conditions, in the majority of, in, of the cases, their consent is uh, is not informed at all, right? Uh, so, and that's and that's a real problem, right? So, and that's uh, something that I am particularly uh, worried about because um, up until now, when we were thinking about privacy regulation, and a good example of this is the general data protection regulation in Europe. We often talked about the importance of companies to be transparent and the importance of uh, uh, always uh, requesting consent. But the problem of consent at the moment is enormous. We live in a, in a, in a environment that is completely datafied. And if we were to be uh, uh, trying to achieve informed consent for every single data policy that we agree to, uh, it would be practically impossible. 
And um, and I'll, I'll I'll make you an example, an example that I actually talk it to the, uh, about in the book. Um, one uh, night I was uh, reading an article on the Me Too movement on Nazi Argento, so it had nothing to do with children or or the Child Data Citizen Project. I was on my own, just reading online, like many of us do. And um, and I clicked on an article of an Italian ma magazine uh, of the website. And to comply with general data protection regulation, the website asked me if I wanted to opt out uh, personalization and find out about the third party with whom they would share my reading that website. Right? And I clicked yes. And the next thing I know is that uh, I am presented with a list of companies that will be uh, gathering my data. And I counted the list of companies and those were 439 companies. So, and the website was explicit by saying, oh, if you, you know, this is how we process our da your data, but actually if you want to understand how they process your data, these are their privacy policies. Those were 439 for one single click. So when uh, parents uh, uh, do not read the terms and conditions, not only because they don't have, uh, uh, they, they don't, you know, they can't be asked or because they resign not to, to read them, but because they literally don't have the time and to give you an idea of how much the lack of time would be, the only research that I could find on this was a, a research by um, uh, written by McDonald and Craner in 2008. And they actually calculated that reading all the privacy policies of uh, uh, websites uh, um, uh, that users encountered in a year uh, would amount to around 201 hours uh, per year of the user's life, 201, just to read the privacy policy. Now, their calculation was based on the fact that they estimated that to read the one privacy policy we usually take around 8 to 10 minutes, right? And But also, their calculation was based on the fact that an average user in the US at the time would encounter 119 websites. So for me, one click I had encountered 439 privacy policy in one click. So um, that's a big difference, you see. So there's no way that we are ever going to be able to uh, provide uh, informed consent as parents, right? And the other problem is that uh, even if we do provide for informed consent, does that, uh, is that enough to protect children's rights? Uh, is that enough? So. For instance, not all children are going to have the same values of the, of the parents. So maybe parents are going to give their consent to share specific data of their children and then that data can actually follow their children across their lifetime and the children can do anything about that. So I think that the very notion of parental consent is, uh, um, is really problematic uh, because it doesn't capture what's happening uh, globally. Towards the end of the book, the discussion shifts to data justice. What does data justice look like in the specific context of children and children's data flows? Generally speaking, if we want uh, uh, data justice for children, then we, are, we need not only a policy change, so a change in data regulations, uh, but we also need a political change, a change in institutional models and organizations, and also cultural change, a change in current perspectives about data privacy. And specifically, I think that um, if uh, if uh, institutions and governments and academics and anyone interested in the field 
is uh, um, wants to pursue uh, um, data ju justice for children and wants to fight for data justice uh, for children. I think we need uh, three main transformations, which is one, uh, that we acknowledge that parental consent is often uh, um, acquired through the coercion of digital participation. Uh, and so that it's not uh, informed consent and it's not transparent. The other aspect that I think we need to address is the fact that uh, a lot of the data that is being collected of children today is collected through adult profiles it's, or aggregated, aggregated profiles uh, with adults. And so I think we uh, new regulations should make sure that children are not judged or profiled on the basis of their families and collectives so that household profiling, that is something that is happening at the moment, should be illegal. Um, and also that all the data that is being collected uh, through technologies that are not designed or targeted at them should be, should be deleted. I think that that's uh, uh, something that we should be demanding at the moment. And also another aspect that we should be demanding is uh, that uh, uh, more action is taken over how data brokers are using and sharing children's data. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, I, and I think in that sense, uh, regulation could be very important too. So when we think about child, uh, children's data that justice, I think that there's something really practical that we can do, but also that we, there's something um, that, we, that is also very theoretical and that we have to keep in mind, which is the fact that all the data of children that is being collected at the moment could be in the future used to determine their rights. That was a great lead-in to my next and final question, which is one that I'll be asking all of my guests this season. The United Nations recently adopted a new general comment, confirming and outlining how children's rights apply in the digital environment. Do you think this will have any impact on the issues and relationships that you describe in your book? Well, I think, to be honest, this is something, I'm glad that you're asking me this question, because this is something very important. We're seeing so many different uh, important steps that have been taken and that have been taken. And also what we are seeing is uh, a greater understanding and awareness of aspects of uh, the identification of children that like uh, were not uh, known five years ago, you see. I think that all this is very important because uh, it's what's going to set the future. So what uh, what I what I believe is happening is the fact that, that we have created technologies that are very powerful and they could bring loads of benefits as well, right? Um, but that we have to really recognize their problem, especially when it comes to algorithmic profiling. And, uh, and I think that um, at the moment uh, we, are, we are seeing policymakers and we're seeing researchers working together uh, to um, to set out a series of steps to make this uh, technologies a little bit uh, uh, safer. Um, and an example that I always use is the fact that, for instance, like I, you know, I I would never I fly in a in a in an airplane of the 1950s, right? If it was 1915 or 1920, I would never fly on an airplane if there was an airplane, <laughs> right? Uh, because it was a th new technology and because it was really not that safe. <laughs> and uh, I mean, to, to our eyes today, and I certainly wouldn't have put my children on them, right? Uh, and, um, and, uh, and this is a little bit what we are facing at the moment with AI. We're, we're facing a, a very complex process of negotiation. We're, we, we, we are fighting a war 
really uh, between different interests uh, and between different political and uh, visions about what these technologies do and how can these technologies can be used. All this uh, um, work that is being done between policymakers and academia uh, and the proposal for regulations, uh, also, for instance, the proposal uh, to regulate AI in Europe, which I find uh, very interesting. Um, so all of these are very important steps forward um, if we want to try to ensure that we live more democratic futures. A big thanks to Professor Barassi for joining us today. Please follow the links in the podcast description to find out more about Dr. Barassi's research, her book, Child Data Citizen, and the other publications mentioned in today's episode, as well as information on where to send your questions or comments. The Critical Technology Podcast is produced by me, Sarah Grimes, with support from the KMDI. Audio mix and sound design by Mika Sustar. Music by Nicholas Manalo. Theme song by Tycoon Park. Our logo was designed by J.P. King, and the artwork for today's episode was created by Kenji Toyoka. Please subscribe to stay up to date on new episodes and posts as they become available. And thank you for listening.